So like I said earlier, the original intent was to go to Hebrews chapter 10 and talk about um, worship. Um, but because of that, I wanted to talk about the woman at the well in John chapter 4. And then the more that I was uh, looking at that, it just it sucked me in like a, like a whirlpool. It just I, I couldn't kind of get away from it to get to Hebrews 10, if that makes sense. And I know I'm, I'm pulling back the veil a little bit of, as far as um, sermon prep goes, but it, you know, essentially it just turned into its own sermon. And the, the irony is that it, it is, um, I, I would title this sermon because now the, the title is still somewhat relevant, but it's something you're leading up to. Uh, now the, the, the title of the sermon is, how to be the most controversial Christian you can be in 2023, okay? <laughs> How you can be the most controversial Christian in 2023, because that is what we are infatuated with these days. I mean, political theater full of controversy. You can't take your eyes off of it. The news all around us, there are just so many things happening that just uh, makes us invested and take sides and all of these things. And I thought, you know, let's double down on this. I, let's just go all the way and being the absolute most controversial kind of person that we can be. Now, you know there's going to be a twist to this, right? Um, but this is, this is what happened as I was, I was, I was looking at John 4. Because Hebrews 10 is essentially um, the writer of Hebrews, who might have been Paul, is essentially taking the whole letter to be controversial to the Jewish people. Like, he is just turning their whole attitude and ideas about worship upside down. But where did he get that from? Well, when you look at the Gospels, and and this is just something that occurred to me this this week. I've kind of known it, but I, I didn't think about it this much until this week. When you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's an almost constant shock value. Jesus is the most controversial person who's ever walked on the face of the earth. He must be because he is something and someone that no one else has ever been. He is God in the flesh. How could that not stir up controversy? How could that not uh, upset people and the the order of things so it's almost obvious isn't it like he must be the most controversial person in in which case everything he did is controversial everything he said was controversial now it's ironic it's ironic because on the one hand jesus is exactly the paradigm of what normal and uncontroversial should be right If normal is what is normative, what everyone should be doing, then Jesus was living a normal life, meaning a perfect, holy, just, loving life. That should be the norm. And in heaven one day, that will be the new normal. That is how things are supposed to be. That is how things are going to be. So in one sense, Jesus should be the least controversial person who's ever lived and walked on the face of the planet because he is God. How should things be? They should be the, the, way, that thing, the way that God 
says they should be. And yet, precisely because the world is not as it should be, because we are sinners, we are accustomed to living in a sin-tainted world, we're accustomed to our own sin and our own sinful thoughts and attitudes, it strikes us as controversial that nearly everything Jesus did is unconventional. It's, he only has, you know, he only almost has one mode. It's either mildly offensive or wildly offensive. And there's not necessarily a whole lot in between. Now, that's not to take away from his mercy and his, and his love and his sacrifice and all those things. But even the way he loved, as we'll see in a second, even the way that he gave and sacrificed, it's kind of controversial. Because remember, when he's choosing disciples in his love and his mercy, he chose people like tax collectors. When he washed the disciples' feet, that's, that's just loving, right? It's controversial. Why? Because he even washed the feet of his betrayer, Judas. So everything that he does, somehow, some way, is, it, it should strike us. I know that if you've been a Christian for a while, you might read these accounts in the Gospels and have read them many, many times over, and you almost take for granted who Jesus is. You've heard all the stories. You've, you've, you've read all of his sermons and sayings, and, and you kind of, you've been stewing in that for a long time, which is good. But I encourage you to read through the Gospels and remember that every moment of his ministry, he is turning everyone's world upside down. Or, maybe better way to think of it, he is turning everything right side up. In other words, Jesus is controversial in all the right ways. And because the world is still cursed by sin and people are still sinners, these words are still, they should still hold some controversy for us. These words still turn hearts right side up. So what I'm hoping for all of us this year is that we would also be controversial in all the right ways, in the ways that Jesus is controversial. And that's, that's how we get into John chapter 4. And you, again, you can read through, and, and, and being, I hope you don't mind, uh, this is almost a long commercial for your John study. Uh, so I hope that makes up for throwing that curveball at you at the end. But um, we are going to go to John 4, but understand it, it's not, I'm not going to be deep diving as much as, as being well in this class. So if you want the deep dive into this passage, you go 9 a.m. Uh, to his class in the office. But I do want to pick up, again, just that theme. You could do this anywhere in the Gospels, I realize. Just pick any place and just realize man, Jesus, you're totally, you know, uh, you're, you're approaching this completely differently than anyone would. In fact, I almost think it's funny, I was thinking about this just sitting here, like how people make like leadership, um, write leadership books based on Jesus and write all kinds of like models of, of how you should do and be based on Jesus. And, and I think it's, it's interesting because it almost seems like the way that Jesus did things was very pragmatic, but almost nothing he he, he did, is. And even our memory verse points out that we are children of God provided we suffer with him. If you followed the, the Jesus method of controversial loving and controversial living, 
don't be surprised if that leads to some, some suffering, not success, not you, you, you become a leader like Jesus and, and you'll grow your business and all these things, grow your ministry. Not necessarily. So understand that as well. If you want to be this kind of controversial, um, I'm, I'm not guaranteeing some outcome that you're going to be beloved by, by everyone. But anyway, John 4, one of the most iconic scenes in the gospel uh, of John, perhaps even in all the gospels, but it is almost quietly one of the most subversive and surprising interactions that Jesus has. And, you know, as I, as I thought about that, like, well, Every interaction he has is, is kind of this kind of subversive. But John 4 really is, because of where it lands, which we, we ironically are not going to get to today, but he uses the Samaritan woman as an opportunity to completely upend almost the entire Old Testament's concept of worship. We'll get there. We'll get there. First way that Jesus is controversial is that Jesus is controversial for offering eternal life to people outside of his culture, outside of his race, outside of his religion. He's offering eternal life to people on the outside. A woman, John 4, 7, from Samaria came to draw water at at a well that Jesus was resting at. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, would you, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. All throughout the Gospels, Jesus was shocking people with the kind of people he spent time with. From calling tax collectors like Matthew to be his disciples, to spending time with prostitutes and Gentiles and lepers, and maybe the most controversially regular average people, he wasn't someone who only associated with folks just like him, who had the same interests and desires as him, who look like him, who sounded like him, who deserved to be in his presence. If anything, that would have been impossible for Jesus to only hang out with people like him. Think about it. He is God in the flesh. He's more holy and pure than to ever bother with the worst kinds of sinners let alone your regular average sinner like me or you. But that's the point, isn't it? That's Christmas. God chose to be among sinners. He wanted to be among people not like him, not holy, not righteous, not loving, not patient, not merciful, in order to minister to them, to show them grace, 
and ultimately to save them, like this woman at the well. Now, you have to understand about the Samaritans, a little bit of background. The Samaritans were considered by the Jewish people to be half-breeds, both by their blood and by their theology. They were half-Jews who had intermixed with the pagan nations at the time of the Assyrian conquest, which is 722 B.C. So you're talking 700 years the Samaritans uh, had been uh, viewed in this kind of negative way. They, they, when the Syrians came, they conquered the northern kingdom of, of Israel. Um, some of them stuck around. The only ones who stuck around were then, you know, the only people around were Assyrians. So they, they, inter, um, they intermarried with them. They had kids or kids had kids for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, they ended up rejecting Every other book of the Old Testament or the the Jewish Bible, except the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, sometimes that's called the Pentateuch. So they believed only the first five books of the Bible. They were half, you know, Jewish and even more diluted, you know, at the time of, of, of Jesus. So they were looked down upon. And they, for their part, also wanted to make a distinction. You know, you guys are the ones that are messed up, not us. We try to preserve the right way of worshiping God. It's you guys who went wayward. They worshiped on a mountain called Mount Gerizim, which if you've uh, been with us on our Joshua studies, that that mountain comes up many times. Um, But they set up an altar there. They worshiped God there, and they really thought they were worshiping God more truly even than the Jewish people. So maybe they were earnest, but they were, they were wrong. Now, another irony here in, in the Gospels is at the same time, the Jews of Jesus' day, they had the whole scriptures, which is right, and they did worship in Jerusalem at the temple, which is right, yet they were just as wrong and wayward as the Samaritans were because they were hypocrites. And you can read all the Gospels and you pick up what is the Jewish religion like at the time. It's not really better than the Samaritans. But here they were in conflict, the Samaritans and the Jews. Um, Jews shunned them. And uh, because the, the Samaritan territory was sort of right in the middle of Israel, if you ever had to go from north to south or south to north, uh, oftentimes you, you would avoid them altogether. So because Jesus was uh, from northern part of, of Israel... If they ever wanted to go to a feast in Jerusalem, which is south, uh, either you went through Samaria or you went around it, and typically people would go way out of their way to avoid it. That's how far that kind of uh, segregation was. Uh, Jews uh, wouldn't deal with Samaritans. That's what you see in verse 9. And that word deal with means literally to share utensils for eating. In other words, they wouldn't even eat or accept food from each other. Now, this is significant because what is Jesus doing? He's specifically asking her for a drink. That would mean to accept from her water in a cup or some other vessel that that he was specifically requesting to deal with her, you could say. Now, I know Jesus, in his human nature, in his human body, he was thirsty, and he did get thirsty and hungry, but that's not the reason that Jesus is asking for a drink, is it? This is not an incidental encounter. This isn't just a chance opportunity that that Jesus had to minister to someone. This was divine providence. This was the convergence of God's purpose and plan 
for this woman and for Jesus. It's not about Jesus getting a drink of water. In fact, you never see anywhere in John chapter 4, I wonder about this, did he ever get the drink of water? Did he ever eat anything? Or did he just keep serving and serving and serving? Because you don't read anywhere that, that he got the water. I, I just think, poor Jesus. You know. But it wasn't about that. It was about his offer to her of living water. But he needed to start the conversation because there was no way that A, a woman, B, a Samaritan, and C, as we'll see later, an adulteress, would initiate a conversation like this with a Jewish person. So Jesus had to initiate, and he does it in a very controversial way, doing something you wouldn't do, which was to ask something to eat or drink from the Samaritan woman. Now, I'm, again, um, I'm sure being able to cover it in more detail about Jacob's well and all these things, but she just brings that up because she is trying to make an excuse and a distraction um, that's you know, supposedly belonged to the patriarch Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And so again, it's her saying our lineage and heritage is stronger than yours. So she's trying to create a conflict. Does Jesus even address it? No, he just completely ignores the comment. And he offers instead the eternal life. Now, there's a lot of very obvious imagery between water and life. We need water to live. The, the reason life is possible on this earth is because we have liquid water on so much of the surface of it. The reason that we have plants and all these wonderful things is because of water. So water and life very closely associated. Now there's a problem is we constantly need water. Uh, we need to find water to drink always if we want to stay alive which in the ancient world meant doing things like having to go to a well and then pull it up with a bucket and then take that home. And that would serve you for what, a day, two days, three days? And then what'd you have to do? Go all the way back to the well and fill up again, which was much more of a chore. They needed water to live like we all do, but they couldn't just go. I mean, I think of it as a chore when I have to get up in the middle of the night and walk over to the fridge and, you know, kick Legos and, and cats and things, get the water and, and bring it back. I think that's such a chore. But just imagine if all the water that you needed to use for the day or the week, you had to haul. I, I mean, it, it's, an, it's kind of an incredible thought. So the necessity of water for life and yet the, the kind of burden and chore it was to constantly retrieve it, that's on their mind. Now, Jesus then in offering eternal, the living water, what he's talking about is obviously not um, like plumbing. <laughs> he's not offering a plumbing solution. You know, you don't even have to leave your house if you get indoor plumbing and all this stuff. He's not, he's not talking about that. He's talking about the thirst that your soul has. He's talking about satisfaction eternally. That is what Jesus is offering. He's offering her eternal life. Now, this is controversial because he is crossing a cultural boundary, both because of the ethnic issue and the religious one. I mean, we've already spent a lot of time in Ephesians, right, talking about building up this theme about how the blood of Jesus unites Jews and Gentiles, which is exactly the message that Jesus 
supersedes all cultural and religious boundaries. He breaks them down. He crosses through them. All the barriers and distinctions that people make with each other, he, he almost says like the issue with Jacob as well, I don't care. <laughs> Do you need water to live? Is there anyone on this planet? It doesn't matter the, their, the color of their skin. It doesn't matter what, what city they grew up in, what continent they claim as their own. Does anyone on this planet, human being, not need water? That is who must be offered eternal living water. That is the message that Jesus brings very controversially. And that's controversial now. I mean, it, it shouldn't be, but it's controversial now to say that there's one true fountain of living water that all must drink from. But the controversy, that, that is a controversial message. There's only salvation in. There's only eternal life in this one eternal fountain, Jesus Christ. But there's also a controversy nowadays to think that that message truly must go out to everyone, people of every culture, race, language, religion. Who does not get thirsty? We all do. So who must hear the message of where the living water is? All must hear without reservation, without qualification. I, I, I'm, I'm out. I, I get worried because we're, we're talking a lot about missions um, lately, and this church, you know, produced many, many missionaries in its past, especially when you had a marine base in our backyard, because those young men, they'd get saved, they'd come to our church, they had international experience, because a lot of them had either been stationed abroad or, or you know, fought in a war abroad, they had international experience, they got saved, and what was their heart? Those people need to hear the gospel. So this church uh, produced a lot of uh, missionaries and pastors at that time. Now, we, we entered a, a phase after the Marine base closed, of course, and um, we don't have necessarily that kind of a community of, of people uh, here anymore. And I, so I sometimes wonder, not just our church, but a lot of churches in our area, are we producing people who think that way, who see a world not based on borders and boundaries and, and race and religion, but just there's a lot of thirsty people that need to hear that there's living water being made available through the fountain of Christ. It's controversial to say that there's one way, but it's also controversial to say that everyone must go this one way and that all must be invited. So Jesus controversially crossed a cultural divide, but he didn't just cross a cultural one. He crossed a moral divide. It's something that makes Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman, again, very controversial. He, he offers living water, but she rejects it, right? I, I mean, it sounds like, oh, well, tell me where this water is, and I'll never be uh, thirsty again. Now, you know, commentators, for the most part, 
assume that she's being kind of snarky here, that she's a, you know, sassing Jesus, because who is this random stranger coming up saying, it almost sounds like a scam. You, you get emails like this too, you know, offering you unlimited wealth or something. That's how it sounds, right? I mean, unlimited water is, might as well be in, in, the, in the desert culture, unlimited money. How many spam emails do you get about that? And how many of those do you click on or care about? So here's another guy just, you know, kind of. So most commentators think she's not genuinely inquisitive about where to, to find this living water. She's not spiritually discerning what's happening. And you know that by Jesus' response. Jesus says, go, call your husband, come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The reason that she didn't receive the message and can't receive it, it's that her sin prevents her from seeing Jesus' offer of eternal life. That's the barrier. So the second way that Jesus is controversial is Jesus is controversial for offering eternal life to people who aren't good people. She's not a good person. Jesus reveals this knowledge of the woman's life. She isn't just a Samaritan woman to be shunned by, by already culture and name and label. You're a Samaritan, uh. No, she is also an adulteress, and given the context, perhaps many times over. Now, I mean, you know, would Jesus bring it up if, if, if you know, her husband died every single time? She's a widow, you know, five times. Well, you could remarry in that context. I mean, that was legit. So what's he insinuating by even bringing it up is that, no, there's something wrong with this. Now, maybe today, no one would bat an eye at the marital history of this woman. Five husbands, you're, you're shacking up with another guy. Maybe nowadays, no one cares, um, but that's extremely controversial for this day um, and for either Samaritan or Jewish culture. Um, the fact that she was even drawing water from what sounds like the middle of the day when it was hottest and when there were less people there, it, it indicates that she was either avoiding others like trying to avoid interacting with others, or maybe others were trying to avoid her, maybe both. We know that she would have been an outcast because of her sin with other people, but she was also an outcast in the eyes of God because God had a, has a standard of holiness, and it seems that she was outside of it. She was an outcast as man would judge it. She's an outcast if you went by the law of God, and no rabbi, no Jewish teacher would have ever been seen in broad daylight with a known, unrepentant adulteress like her, because it would taint his reputation. He would be disgusted at the thought that anyone would see them together and associate him with such a, a woman of poor character and loose morals, and on top of being a Samaritan. So she was doubly damned. She was damned for being... A Samaritan, she was damned for being an adulteress. I mean, no one would want to hang out with her, let alone some distinguished rabbi, teacher, Pharisee, or scribe. Maybe even triply damned because she was a woman, and, and uh, there's uh, some indication, at least in later Jewish t tradition, that, that women were kind of demonized and blamed for a lot of things. 
And so uh, maybe even just everything was stacked against her as being someone who is deserving of hearing the gospel offer of eternal life. But Jesus knew she was a sinner before he offered her the living water. It's not like he thought he was talking to like a respectable, upstanding, noble woman, and he was offering her a gift to match her noble character. And then, oh, what? You're, uh, you're an adulteress? You're a loose woman? You're, you're, you're scum of the earth? I take it back. I mean, that's maybe what we would do. Maybe that's what, what a lot of the, the rabbis and teachers would have done at the time of Jesus. But he knew from the get-go that she was a bad person. And he deliberately approached her. He intentionally began the conversation with the goal of offering her eternal life, with the purpose of bringing her into a conversation about who God is, about worship, about exposing her sin in order to draw her in. So there was nothing about him, nothing about her that would make him choose her. Instead, he deliberately went the opposite way. He saw someone that everyone else would have discounted, disregarded, not just that, not just ignored, but openly judged and condemned. And he deliberately went to her and offered her eternal life. Who do you think deserves the offer of eternal life after all? Just the nice people? Just the good people? Just the people that, that you like or that are, that are like you? The ones who agree with you on everything else, your values and your morals? Yet isn't it backward to expect people who deserve eternal life to be the only ones offered eternal life? It's sadly controversial, it seems. And this is not just a, a, an issue that's you know, recent in Christian history. This is something Christians and churches have struggled with uh, for thousands of years. But it, it's, there's always been a kind of a secret or subtle kind of attitude that can creep up in churches that some people are more deserving of the gospel than other people. Or at least that there are some people who are not worth your time to share. Now, I'm not talking about necessarily people who just openly reject the gospel to your face after you offer it to them. I mean, you, don't, you can you know, shake the dust off your sandals and, and move on. But just the idea that there are categories of people who are worth your time and people who are not. The people that you think are going to accept the gospel and who deserve that and people who don't. Jesus had no such categories. His only qualification is, again, do you need water to live? Are you a human being that needs water to live? You need to hear this message. Jesus, very controversially, went to a specifically an awful, you know, immoral woman who's who's of character that that any of us, if we knew someone 
this is this is kind of a this is this is a little bit of a random story, but I have in my office a little plastic plant, um, and the person who gave it to me. This is going to sound controversial when I say it this way. I should have thought of this through better. But she was a, an escort, okay? <laughs> she, she, wasn't, she was a former escort, I should say that. Um, and she had come to the church office to give me this plant because as a part of her going through like a, like a sex worker's um, anonymous kind of program that she needed to go to anybody that she had offended or hurt and apologize. Now, the thing is, my only connection to her is that... Um, Someone I know that was dating her found out that she was an escort. And then because he knew I was a pastor, he's like, can you please talk to her? I didn't know about this. Can you please talk to her? She needs to hear the gospel. She needs to. And so, like, I remember it. You know, they both came over to my house. This is, uh, like, first or second year of marriage. And, and I, you know, I shared the gospel with her. And I, I, I told her that she could be forgiven, um, you know, everything, and, and I heard everything, and um, I, you know, he, you know, he was trying to, I don't know, like, fi- fix her kind of thing, but he, it was, it's outside both of our pay grades, it's something only the Lord could do, so they, they separated, but it was like a year or two later that she showed up at the door, I almost didn't recognize, because I met her one time, um, and, uh, and, she, and she gifted that to me, and it was out of nowhere, because I, I was like, I, you, you didn't hurt me, or offend me, like, she, she didn't sin against me, but in her mind, just being a, like, a, you know, basically a sex worker and coming to my house was, like, her, like, tainting me or, like, sinning against me just by, by coming to, like, a pastor's house. And so she felt like she was, I was someone that, that she had hurt by her sin. That you know, that's a very humbling thought. Um, it's why I still keep the plant um, in my office. She had this moment in her life where she didn't see herself as deserving of eternal life, but she was thankful that, that someone cared. Um, the, our, our mutual acquaintance, um, me, and she thought of her sin as, as so egregious to just being in my presence, you know, as a supposedly, you know, holy person, a pastor. I, I mean, I, I tried to correct her on, on that um, when she, you know, said she was sorry to me. <laughs> what are you sorry for? No, it's exactly what Jesus wants is for sinners to feel the weight of their sin in order to really understand how thirsty they are spiritually in order to appreciate that living water. But I don't know if you think prostitutes or people, I mean, this is, now it's so awful. This is, I don't know, 10 years ago, a little over 10 years ago, but now like social media is almost entirely just that actually. Just, it might as well be like, pornography and women selling themselves and it's so easy just to judge it (laughs) do you think they need the gospel or not i mean who do we think deserves eternal life who doesn't jesus is very controversial 
he deliberately went to someone that everyone would have counted outside of the kingdom. And, and this really leads to the third controversial lifestyle that Jesus had. It's, so these are interrelated, and I've already kind of related to them together, but I want to emphasize it in a, in a way separately. Jesus is controversial for speaking directly to sin in order to draw in, not condemn. He controversially, when his attitude about sin was to draw people in, not to push them out. We see that because he does directly address the sin issue. Well, he doesn't use the word sin, but he does directly address the sin issue, doesn't he? But what's the purpose of it? Why did he bring it up? Well, it wasn't to push her out. It was to bring her in. We know that because that's what happens. That's the result of it. And the result wasn't going to be something contrary to what God's desire was. So the result of it is she didn't walk away, nor did Jesus walk away in disgust. But what happens is one of the most shocking, controversial takes that, that are in the Gospels about worship. And he gives it to this Samaritan woman. I mean, we'll, we'll get there, Lord willing, another time. But Jesus, when he brings up her sin, it is for the purpose to draw her in. You could read this in a way that might paint Jesus as being snarky or sarcastic. Maybe even rude or harsh. Yeah, you have no husband. You have five husbands. And the guy you're with now is not even your husband. You're, you're right. Now, we can't know for sure the tone that Jesus used. That's not preserved for us here. But we know that Jesus' attitude wasn't to drive her away. We know that 100% because that's not what happens. And we know that it's not to berate her about something she knew about her life already because he doesn't bring it up again. He isn't trying to push her away. He isn't annoyed with her. He doesn't say, you know, you shouldn't do that, right? Uh, you realize how bad it is that you're an adultery. Don't you get it? This is awful. God's going to condemn it and judge it. He doesn't kill any further discussion He's not debating ethics or trying to bait her into, you know, uh, condemning herself or anything like that. There's no, like, gotcha, you know. <laughs> you see, I knew you were an awful person, and I got you admitted. There's nothing like that. Maybe we don't know Jesus' tone, but we know that it drew her into a conversation about worship and who God is. And since that's what happened, that was Jesus' intent. The purpose of bringing up her sin, it wasn't actually to talk about her sin. It was to talk about God. That's really controversial. And that's contrary to, and, and here I, I use, you know, us, how we think about the sins of others. But you know what? I won't even put that on you. I'll just own up to it myself. I mean, I'll be honest. The, the reason I like to bring up the sins of others is in order to judge them and feel better about myself. If that applies to you, that applies to you. If it doesn't apply to you, it doesn't apply to you. But I'll be honest. When I stop 
and think about how I think of other people's sins. We just like talking about it in order to rub it in, in order to feel like we're better and more holier than than other people. We like getting upset about the latest ridiculous thing that wicked people are doing. I, I, I like... You know, I, I like getting offended. I like talking about how everything is awful and people's sins are so awful. And what it really is is an excuse for why we don't offer people eternal life. Because people are just too awful, the world's awful, it's going to, you know, the bad place in a, in a handbasket. Everything's going down the tubes. America's this. And, you know, we want to do that because it then gives us an excuse to not offer salvation, to not look at our own sin. But was imagine, I, I know, you got to be careful about this, but this is not preserved for us, for us not to engage at least a little bit of our uh, Holy Spirit-inspired imagination. Just imagine this. Was Jesus sitting there with this Samaritan woman with an outraged, judgmental, smug, condescending look on his face? <laughs> can't believe you know who you're talking to. Like, I'm the Holy Son of God, and you're this wicked, immoral person. I just imagine, like, I, like all the, the talking heads, you know, the, you know, even, like, pastors on YouTube and podcasts and, and things, when they talk about, like, social issues and things that are, are going on, and, and almost the, the, the smugness of it, or almost the glee in pointing out how dumb sinners are being and almost excited about it, you think Jesus was doing that? <laughs> you think that's a look on his face right now when he's talking to the Samaritan? He's excited that she got the sinner, got her. Or is he brokenhearted? Is he bringing this up because he is, you know, I don't, I don't know like how God, you know, Jesus in the flesh experienced God's sovereignty. Like, does he know in the moment how this is going to pan out? Because if he knows and you, you just don't want to remove his his human nature, his experience of this moment. Was he, he was totally divine? Yes. So he knew what was going on in this woman's life before he even showed up. But he's also a human that feels sympathy and pity. He feels very human emotions like that, that, that we get from God. But he, he, he felt that sort of th- too. So is he there with a condescending judgmental attitude? hoping that she just falls into his trap, that he's so skillfully let up so that he can got her? Or is he brokenhearted? Is he hoping, not just hoping, but is he knowing that, that God the Father is using the exposure of her sin to draw her into a conversation about deeper things, about worship, about the nature of God, about who he is as the Messiah, The only people that Jesus calls out very consistently 
and sarcastically, and with that little bit of, you know, kind of smugness even, if you could call it that, the only people that Jesus does that to are religious people, are effectively pastors, lifelong Christians. That's who he has that kind of attitude towards. You look at it. When you want to look for snarky, a little bit angry Jesus, when he makes the, the whip and overturns the tables, is it Gentiles he's doing that to? Samaritans? Pagans? He's doing that in the temple. You know who runs the temple? Very religious, very rich Jewish leaders. Pastors. <laughs> you know, staff and volunteers at churches. That's who he's doing that to. But here, that's not his attitude. To expose sin is an opportunity and a grace. We must do it. We got to call out sin. We do. But the point is not to set a trap. The point of exposing someone's sin to them is to reveal that they're already in a trap. That they've been bound up in their sin and their identity is compromised because they have made union with things that are are destructive and meaningless and purposeless. To expose sin is a grace we give, not to shame, not to be condescending or judgmental, but to love someone that's either heading into the trap or is already stuck in a trap that they cannot escape from on their own. We don't expose people's sin to call sins to lay a trap. That's what Satan does. If sin is keeping people from laying hold of eternal life, the right response is pity and patience, hospitality even. People need to think more about God. That's why we bring up sin, because sin has to do with God. It hasn't it doesn't have to do with morals, you understand? Like, bringing up sin doesn't have to do with morality and ethics. It has to do with the nature of God. And what we want people to do when we bring up their sin is not to have a discussion, you know, about all the, you know, nitty-gritties of their, their sin. Likely, they already know what's wrong. It's to have a talk about Jesus. That's the reason And so I will be very clear. Like, you know, here at this church, we believe there's a lot of things that are sin that are going on in the world. There's a lot of sexual behaviors that are sinful. Homosexuality, fornication, adultery, pornography, incest. And that's like the top, you know, five list of things that are in right now. You know, not monogamy, not faithfulness, not living in a one flesh union with your wife. It's, you know, ditch the, your spouse as soon as things get gets hard. Cheating is okay as long as it's, it's love. Even in churches, we get that. We think those are all sin. But again, like Jesus doesn't even say, lady, you're a sinful, sinning sinner. Don't you realize how sinful you are? Uh, in fact, it's rare for Jesus call people, specific people sinners. Sometimes he uses it as a category, but 
for him to actually specifically call someone a sinner, um, he rarely does that. Maybe if at all, I, I, I should have looked into that, but that's just not really his thing. But he points out their sin. He brings it up. Go sell everything you have. Come follow me. What was he doing to the rich young ruler? Pointing out sin. I need to say, you sinning, sinful, sinner, sin, sin, sin. It's, you, you love your money more than you love anything else. That's a conversation that points out their sin. Now, I, I, I want to close with a, a testimony of a woman by the name of Rosaria Butterfield. And I, I, I've shared her testimony before. It's been mentioned. She's been mentioned by myself and Pastor Chris in the past. I want to say recently. Um, so Google her or, or look her up. But I, I want to point out the way that, that people controversially ministered to her because it's almost exactly this. For context, Rosaria Butterfield, um, prior to becoming a Christian, was a tenured professor. She's openly lesbian. She wrote primarily on issues of feminism and, and, and the patriarchy and, and uh, Christianity and, and culture, um, all from a very, of course, critical point of view. So she had written a big piece, and a pastor wrote her a letter inviting her to talk, and, ask, and, she, and he asked questions about her worldview. Where do you get your worldview from? And when she got the letter, she was the type to revel in uh, the tears of Christians, <laughs> you know, like when people would be outraged and, and uh, tell her, condemn her, tell her she's going to hell. She had a file for that. She kept those because she, she loved to see the tears of Christians being so angry and it upset her. But this one, it didn't quite fit that. You know, it wasn't outrage. It was, it was questions. So she threw it away. But something about it kind of, it stuck in her mind. So she picked the letter up out of the trash and almost against her own, like, desire, it's like, I'm gonna go you know, to dinner, because he invited her to dinner and, and to talk. I'm going to go, and it'll be research for my next, you know, you know essay or journal on, on Christians and, and, and LGBT issues. So I'm going to quote now from an interview that she did. With the letter, Ken, that's the pastor, initiated two years of bringing the church to me, a heathen. Oh, I had seen my share of Bible verses on placards at gay pride marches, that Christians who mocked me on gay pride day were, were happy that I and everyone I loved were going to hell was clear as blue sky. That is not what Ken did. He did not mock, he engaged. So when his letter invited me to get together for dinner, I accepted. My motives at the time were straightforward. Surely this would be good for my research. Something else happened. Ken and his wife, Floyd, and I became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if such conversation, conversations were polluting them. They did not treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way I'd never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. And because Ken and Floyd did not invite me to church, I, I knew it was safe to be friends. Rosario Butterfield began to read the Bible voraciously. And almost again against her will, like she was being drawn, 
like this woman at the well, she began to attend the church that that Ken pastored, which was a solid Reformed Presbyterian church. He didn't beg her. He didn't say, if you don't come, we're going to stop meeting together or anything like that. But she started to attend, and she stood out. (laughs) Um, But the people there continued to draw her in, to, to challenge her to know Jesus. And one day, she realized the issue here wasn't her sexuality. It wasn't about being a lesbian or any of her other sins, but her identity. Again, I quote, Am I a a lesbian, or has this all been a case of mistaken identity? If Jesus could split the world asunder, divide marrow from soul, could he make my true identity prevail? Who am I? Who will God have me to be? She goes on to say that on one ordinary day, she came to Jesus. You can hear more about her testimony and ministry online, but she ended up uh, marrying a pastor, being a pastor's wife, having children, having to this day a very vibrant ministry to um, the LGBTQIA community. Um, she's honestly considered a controversial figure on both sides. Because a lot of Christians do not like what she's doing at all because it seems like she is actually talking to you know, uh, sinners and, and trying to have conversations with them. On the other hand, the LGBT community sees her as a turncoat. They don't trust her. They don't think she's being honest about her desire. So she's very controversial. But she was uh, the victim of a controversial pastor. Maybe that's where she got a little bit of it from. But no more controversial than, than Jesus I, 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 like, I like that challenge. Or the challenge that I saw as I was going through the Gospels this week. If you're in a Bible reading program or if you're going through John um, or we're going through Luke and Wednesday nights, read it with the attitude of, okay, Jesus is about to make the most hottest take you could make in this day. He's just about to drop the most controversial, you know, uh, words and, and actions here. What are they? How can I be? Why is it controversial? Why is it so controversial what he's about to do? Because almost everything is. And to strive to be that kind of controversial Christian in 2023, our church will be blessed. The nation will be blessed. The world would be blessed. Eternal life is being offered to all who are thirsty, but they must come through the fountain of Christ through his blood that was shed on the cross for sinners. He paid the price for our sin and made a way for us to be right with God. That offer of eternal life is for all sinners, no matter how undeserving you might think you are. He says, come, drink, be satisfied. And you too can be like the Samaritan woman, finding salvation and hope in the Messiah. We'll get to the next controversial take next time we're together. Heavenly Father, thank you for... I, I hope that you're doing things outside of what I could think or imagine because if, if the best plan is one I would, could come up with, then there's not much hope for me or anyone. Lord, I pray that on the one hand, we would find it normal 
to live as Jesus did. That your way, that your holiness, your standards would be how we would live our life. And yet we know in our sin and living in this incursed world, we read these things and think, man, who can, who, can, who can live like this? Who can be so gracious, so loving? Who can be so firm against pressure? Who can be so consistent in seeking the Father and in sacrificing for others? We can't. And that's why we need a Savior. That's why we need Jesus. That's why we need your Spirit. So I pray, Lord, that as we look to maybe these challenging thoughts uh, for today, at least, maybe for the year ahead, um, that we would also be likewise filled by your Spirit, um, that the, the love of the Father would be in us, and that our hope would continue to be in Christ to make us uh, like him. So thank you, Lord, for your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I know we're running late. Let's stand together and sing the doxology, hymn 440.